As many of you know, some of you might not, I got married about seven weeks ago, which is awesome. It's not really, it's not really new news anymore, right? Seven weeks, it's like, golly. Um, but it's crazy. It's kind, of, it's kind of flown by a little bit. Uh, but what some of you probably don't know is that we were engaged, me, and I think I have a, a picture, actually, of me and uh, my wife, Julie. Yeah. You see that fist pump? That's because MJ used to fist pump. So... Um, that's why I fist pumped there, uh, the only thing that I knew to do. That is Julie, my beautiful bride. Um, and, and yeah, we were, we were, we've been married for seven weeks, but one thing that you probably don't know is that we were engaged for 12, almost 13 months. I would not recommend that ever, okay? If you guys get married one day, if some of you do, um, I would say like if I could go back six to nine months max, okay? Um, the whole being engaged for a really long time thing, it wasn't on purpose. It's just kind of the way things worked out and timing, and we were finishing up graduate school in Dallas, and it's just kind of how it worked out. But at the time, we thought, oh, hey, you know what? This is going to work out fine because now we have plenty of time to plan the wedding, we can do it with no stress, and we could be done with like three months early, and we don't have to worry about everything. Man, this 12-month thing is going to be the best thing that ever happened to our engagement. That's not how it worked, okay? It actually works against you when you're engaged for a long time, because rather than finishing early, you just have more time to look at Pinterest, right? Um, I've told you before, if you've heard me, I'm a fan of Pinterest, okay? I used to think it was just for girls. It's not. Pinterest is amazing. <laughs> Don't search my boards because they're all private, okay? But I use Pinterest. I'm not going to tell you what I use it for. That's irrelevant to this conversation. But 12 months does nothing for you except make you look at Pinterest more. And it makes you draw out decisions and, and it makes you think of new ideas. And instead of landing on one thing, you're always finding something newer and better and more expensive. And you're always trying to figure out, oh, well, I can do this. I can do that. I can do this. And the 12-month thing ended up working against us because rather than making decisions to finish wrapping up and planning the wedding early, it took us a lot longer, all the way up to just a couple of weeks, even a week before the wedding, you're doing stuff thinking, where in the world did these 12 months go? And it was, it was a relatively stressful time, right? There were random things that kind of went wrong during wedding planning. Um, one of the big things that went wrong was our invitations. That's kind of a big problem to have because you want people to come to your, your wedding, right? We thought, look, we're going to save some money. And so we're going to have somebody design our invitations like by hand. That was kind of like a thing to do, you know. It's like cool calligraphy. And then we thought we'll print it off on nice paper, make copies of it, and send them out. It'll be awesome. And then we thought since we're saving money on invitations, we could spend a little bit more money and, and have this same person um, handwrite and uh, address all of our envelopes. We thought this is going to look awesome until we got them back. And uh, we, we got the invitations back, and they were, eh, you know. And then we got the, the envelopes back, and they were like, oh, you know, and it was like, we can't even read these. And I'm thinking, we can't send these out. To the point where I had, we, we, we love this person, very kind person, very nice person, um, but, but it was to the point where we got these envelopes back, and it was like, we can't send these to people, and, and I can't pay for these because I have to buy new envelopes. So I did what any great fiance did. I had an awkward conversation with a person, um, said calligrapher, and then I went what any great fiance did, would do, and I went to Michael's and I bought a calligraphy pen. That's right. For a guy, I have fantastic handwriting. Ask anybody in our office. And so I thought, look, I can pick up, I can, it's calligraphy. I could do that. So I started practicing calligraphy for days. It took me almost six days to address those stupid envelopes with calligraphy. It was one of the worst experiences of my life. I wanted to kill myself or strangle a cat or something. Like I, I was so tired of addressing things, but I did it. 
And it, it, it didn't look half bad, right? I'm not about to open up an Etsy shop or anything, but I mean, it worked, right? Man, it was a debacle. It was crazy. And then there were all these random fights that Julie and I would get in because her timeline never matched up with my timeline. She'd say, hey, Samer, can you do something? I'd say, yeah, I'll get it done. She comes to me the next day, hey, did you do it? I'm like, you asked me yesterday. Can we pump the brakes for a minute, you know? And she's like, why don't you get it done now? I'm like, why don't I get it done later? We got 12 months, you know? And so round and round it went. We got in all these random bickering fights. But, but to be quite honest, there was a point, and there was about a three-month period leading up to the wedding where it really started to take a toll on me personally. Um, I started to feel really tired. And so I just thought, okay, look, maybe I just need to start going to bed on time. So I tried to go to bed on time, and I tried to take a power nap, you know, in the middle of the day. I read articles on, like, a 20-minute power nap's really good for you. And so I tried to rest a little bit more and get to bed on time, but I still found myself really tired. And then I started noticing that I wasn't being myself, right? There were times when I would lash out and get frustrated at things that I didn't need to get frustrated about. There were times when I'd lash out in anger at Julie about something really dumb, or I'd lash out at my mom for having a bad idea. And if you know how sweet my mom is, you think I was the devil for lashing out at that sweet woman. But I did. I treated people that I love in a way that I'd never treated them before. Something, something was off. I'd get frustrated at little things. I started to realize that I was getting really stressed out uh, to the point where I wasn't able to sleep. Um, my, I couldn't turn my brain off. I'd never experienced where I couldn't turn my brain off. I couldn't go to sleep at night. I'd wake up in the middle of the night and have, a, have stress attacks. Literally, I'd wake up and I couldn't, I'd have to think about everything I would have to do when I couldn't get back to sleep. And I'm a very high capacity person, right? Like I, I can take on a lot. I've never experienced this kind of stress, but I was so stressed and I couldn't sleep. It was affecting the way that I worked, right? I couldn't get messages down. It, it took me probably twice as long to write a message because I couldn't just translate what was going on in my brain. I was getting really forgetful. I was so out of rhythm, and what I realized is that what I was going through, what I slowly realized eventually, is that what I was going through was far beyond any kind of physical tiredness. It was far beyond any kind of physical fatigue. The fatigue and the tiredness that I was experiencing, and it was clearly affecting so many areas of my life, was not something that would get fixed with more sleep, a cup of coffee, or a relaxing afternoon on the golf course. I was on the struggle bus. I mean, I was strapped in with a seatbelt here and the seatbelt that comes over your shoulders. I was trapped on that struggle bus. And maybe, maybe you can relate, right? Some of you are like, Sam, I spend more time on the struggle bus than I do in my own car, right? You're thinking, some of you are like, Sam, I could apply to be a bus driver of the Big Owl bus because I don't ride the struggle bus. I drive the struggle bus, right? Maybe that's, maybe that's your life. But you can relate. Like when, when you're on the struggle bus, it's not that going to sleep early and taking a nap is going to fix it. There's, there's something that's out of whack, right? You're, you're just kind of out of rhythm. It's really hard to kind of put your finger on it, but you're just not all there. You're a little bit slower. It's like your entire life and your day-to-day -day life is defined by that one dude that can't clap on beat. You know what I mean? Like that kind of is the culmination of your life. The one guy that's like, trust it all. You know, he's like, bro, you're ruining it for me. I know it's about God. I need you to stop, you know, or sit, you know. Like, can we do that meet and greet thing? I'm going to go over here, right? <laughs> it's like your whole life is defined by being out of rhythm. And what I was experiencing and what so many of you experienced, especially this time of year with school and when you're on the struggle bus, it's far beyond anything physical. And what I was experiencing and what many of you have experienced, will experience, or are experiencing 
is not just a physical fatigue. No, no, it's more than that. It's a fatigue of your soul. In fact, for me, my soul was getting tired. Now, as I understand it, as I've read it, as I've kind of unpacked it on myself, the soul really is the culmination of your body, your mind, and your will. Your body, your mind, and your will. And before you think I'm crazy, right, for saying that my soul got tired, before you think I'm crazy for saying that your soul can get tired, there is actually a scientific study that has been done by a a Florida State professor by the name of psychologist Dr. Roy Baumeister. What a last name. Dr. Baumeister, he did a study, a scientific study on a tiredness that goes far beyond anything physical. In fact, he kind of coined this term in the psychology community, ego depletion. Ego depletion. And what he discovered was in ego depletion, people who are depleted in this ego depleted state, they are experiencing a tiredness that is far beyond a physical tiredness. And then listen to what some of his findings showed as he researched people and did some of his study. This is what he found. This is so fascinating. He said that people living in this depleted condition report more tiredness physically, but they also report more negative emotions. So right off the bat, there's something more than just physical. Depleted people who watch a sad movie become extra sad, right? Nicholas Sparks becomes more sad than I already think it is when you are depleted. I cry. When facing temptation, this is crazy, depleted people are more likely to give in. Again, this isn't my opinion. This is is what he found researching that depleted people right? This tiredness going far beyond the physical. When faced with temptation, they're more likely to give in to something compared to when they're in their normal state. He's, he found that when faced with challenges, like an especially difficult assignment at work or at school, depleted people are more likely to fail or turn in lower quality work, far beyond anything physical. The brain area that's crucial for self-control, the anterior cingulate cortex, I don't know why I pointed to my head. I have no idea where that is in your brain. No idea. They don't know where it is. <clears throat> but the brain area that's crucial for self-control actually experiences a slowdown in depleted people, and they, as a result, have less self-control and might do things that they normally wouldn't do in a normal state. That's amazing to me, that people who are experiencing this ego depletion, this tiredness that's far beyond physical, have less self-control and might make decisions that one day they'll regret. And then lastly, he found that depleted people have less satisfying relationships. And married couples who are both depleted bicker and fight about trivial things that they both admittedly would say aren't that big of a deal. And so Dr. Roy Baumeister, he found that, hey, there's this ego depletion kind of tiredness where we get so depleted, it starts to affect every area of our life. And it's not fixed by just sleeping. Now, you don't have to be planning a wedding to experience this kind of craziness. You don't have to be planning a wedding to get out of rhythm, right? You're in college. You're busy. You're being pulled in so many different directions. Your life is full of so many different distractions that are pulling you in so many different ways. And we're going to talk specifically about distractions in our lives next week so you don't want to miss part two of Struggle Bus. But you know what it's like. You know what it's like to feel this out of rhythm, You can't really put your finger on it, but you know something's just not right. You're on the struggle bus. Well, here's what I would propose to you is that your soul might be tired. Your body, your will, and your mind, right? Your body grows tired. 
You stay up all night studying for an exam and you wake up the next morning, your body's going to grow tired. You, you, you survive on Red Bull and coffee to keep you up for a four-day stint of staying up all the time with four hours of sleep at night. Your body is going to grow tired. You play every intramural sport under the sun. That's cool, but your body's going to get tired. Your bodies, our bodies grow tired. Your mind grows tired. Every single day, you're inundated with notes and information and stuff you have to memorize for tests and exams and quizzes and projects. You have more mental checklists and physical checklists in your agenda and on your new checklist app than you know what to do with. Your minds grow tired. You're making so many decisions throughout the day trying to figure out what to do. Your minds grow tired. You look at multiple screens throughout the day. You look at your computer screen, your laptop, your iPad, your iPhone, your Android, whatever it is you have. All these multiple screens, your TV throughout the day, our minds grow tired. Your will, your will grows tired. You think about the number of decisions that you have to make every single day. And yeah, they're just decisions. But the more you do it and every single day, it wears on you. You make so many decisions the other day, what you're going to wear, what you're going to order at Starbucks, what you're going to do with the little free time that you have, how you can make people happy, what you're going to wear to impress, what you're going to wear when you don't really care to impress, what class you're going to take and when, what you're going to major in. You know that signing up for classes is the most stressful thing in the world because you want that 10 o'clock Wednesday class, but it's only offered on Friday at 3, and you hate it, right? My man, my man, Malcolm, I see you. Our wills grow tired. So yeah, our bodies grow tired. Our minds grow tired. Our wills grow tired. And the culmination of all of that is a tired and fatigued soul or a seat on the struggle bus. An interesting thing about this fatigue though, right? Anybody who is busy, as we mentioned, anyone who is busy is in danger of this soul fatigue. You're in college and you're busy, but being busy is not a bad thing, right? Busy is having a full schedule. Busy is having tests to study for. Busy is having homework. Busy is having clubs to go to and meetings to go to and a job to do. Busy isn't necessarily a bad thing. I read a book by a guy named John Ortberg called Soul Keeper. Soul Keeper, it's a fantastic book and I would recommend it to anybody. And in it, he makes this, this observation that busyness is not a bad thing because busyness, you ready, is an outward condition. Busyness is just something that you do. You can take a break from your busyness. You're studying, you can go on a Netflix binge, right? You're working on a project, you can go take a break and work out. You can go hang out on the green and throw a Frisbee. Busyness is an outward condition that you can pull away and take a break from. But busyness, when it goes unchecked, starts to squeeze out margin out of your life. Busyness, when it goes unchecked, starts to squeeze out what's important and it starts to fill it with the urgent All of a sudden, relationships that matter get to put on the back burner. When busyness starts to go unchecked, right, God gets put on the back burner. When busyness goes unchecked, your Bible starts to collect dust or you don't know where you put your Bible app anymore because it's been a long time since you went to it. When busyness goes unchecked, it morphs into hurriedness. And hurriedness is the enemy. Because when you're always in a hurry, it means you're always preoccupied. When you're always in a hurry, you can't pay attention to one thing at a time. When you're always in a hurry, you're never present. You're never present in any circumstance. You're never present in any relationship. You're never present in anything that's going on because you're always hurrying to the next thing. When you're always in a hurry, 
you become emotionally and mentally and ultimately the root of all of it, you become spiritually drained. And kind of to sum it all up, this is what I would say, is that when you're unchecked, excuse me, when your unchecked busyness morphs into uncontrollable hurriedness, your soul grows tired. When your unchecked busyness morphs into uncontrollable hurriedness, your soul grows tired. And it's far beyond anything physical, but it's a condition of the soul. And here's what John Orberg would say in his book, that while busyness is an outward condition, hurriedness is an inward condition of the soul. The problem with all of this is that it's really hard to have a gauge for soul fatigue, right? When you're physically tired, it's really easy. You know, you run a marathon, you get tired. You go shopping with your girlfriend, you need to come back and watch ESPN. Like, you, you can kind of tell when that happens. Your gas gauge, it tells you very clearly when you're on empty. It even tells you when you're, how many miles you have left. I love to flirt with that zero distance to empty thing. I do. I live on the edge. Call me crazy, okay? But I do. That's how I have excitement in my life sometimes. But soul fatigue isn't as is, is easy to gauge. It isn't as easy to see. But here's what I would suggest are some indicators of what soul fatigue might be. Then we're going to talk about what we do about it. Your soul might be tired if things seem to bother you more than they probably should. So your soul might be tired if it's hard to make up your mind even about simple decisions. Your soul might be tired if impulses and cravings and temptations are harder to resist. Your soul might be tired if you are more likely to favor short-term gain that will leave you with long-term consequences. Your soul might be tired if your judgment is suffering and you're always making bad decisions. Your soul might be tired if you have less courage and find yourself shrinking back more than usual. Your soul might be tired if you're having a hard time connecting with God. And lastly, your soul might be tired if you feel like you're going through a spiritual drought or a spiritually dry season where you're just not even really sure what you're doing anymore. It's not an exhaustive list. But if any of that is true of you, maybe your soul is tired. If you feel like you're on the struggle bus, maybe it's because your soul is tired. And Jesus understood that the human tendency would be to gravitate towards busyness that would lead to hurriedness, that would lead to soul fatigue, that would get us out of rhythm. And so he speaks to this issue. In fact, he gives us an invitation off of the struggle bus. Jesus understood that this was a condition of the soul. Physical tiredness is easy to fix, but soul fatigue It's a spiritual condition, and Jesus understood that, which is why he gives us an invitation off of the struggle bus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30. That's where we're going to be tonight, Matthew chapter 11. It's the first book in the New Testament. If you're turning there, if you get to Mark, you went too far, just go back one. And then it's going to be on the screen, so that is okay too. But Matthew chapter 11, this is what Jesus says in verse 28. He says, come to me. All of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So it's an invitation. Hey, don't go take a nap. Don't go sleep. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All of you who are weary, weary from working, 
weary from school, weary from toiling, weary from all the things that you have to do and get done, weary from life, right? Life throws curveballs. Life is difficult to deal with. Circumstances happen out of our control. Weary of dealing with that relationship, weary of dealing with that sickness, weary of dealing with that family issue, weary of dealing with that thing that unexpectedly came up and it shocked your life and totally changed your trajectory. She says, hey, all of you who are weary, tired of carrying the thing that you have to carry, come to me. And he says, come to me, all of you who are burdened. All of you, maybe for some of you, who are burdened with a particular sin that you just can't seem to shake no matter what you do. Some of you who are burdened with a consequence as a result of something, a mistake that you made. Maybe for some of you, come to me, all of you who are burdened with some kind of guilt that you're carrying that you don't need to carry, but there's a level of guilt that you feel because of what you've done. And so Jesus says, hey, those who are burdened with guilt, come to me. Maybe for some of you, you're burdened with an insecurity where you just can't measure up. You can't measure up to people. You can't measure up to that relationship. You can't measure up to God. We all know what it's like to not feel like we're good enough for something, right? Maybe it's a coach. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe you just don't feel like you can ever get it right in a relationship. Doesn't it feel like a burden that you're carrying? It's not just this physical thing. It's not just, I need to take a rest and then I'll feel better about myself. No, 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 no. It's this burden that we carry. And Jesus says, hey, those of you who are struggling with something more than just physical, those of you who have soul fatigue, they're on the struggle bus, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And this idea of rest, this is so cool. The idea of rest that Jesus is talking about is directly connected to the idea of restoration. Restoration. Jesus wants to restore you. Jesus wants to restore me. Jesus wants to restore what's been depleted. He wants to take us from a depleted state and restore us to a full state. Jesus wants to restore us. He wants to give us our life back. He wants us to get our rhythm back and step off the struggle bus. What does that look like? He goes on in verse 29. He says, come to me, verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. There's our word. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, take my yoke upon you, and then you will find rest for your souls. Well, what is, what is yoke? What is he talking about? Fried eggs? What, like what in the world is Jesus? What? So when Jesus would have said the word yoke to this Jewish audience, two images would have come to mind, Right? And the first, right, I don't, it's not really an image, I don't have anything for it, but it's the law. Here's what, here's what Jesus was talking about. Rabbis, Jewish rabbis back in that day, what they would do is they would refer to the law as the yoke of the law. And here's what the law is. This Bible here, the Old Testament, the law is the first five books of the Bible. And essentially what makes up the law, more or less, right, is these 613 commandments that Jews had to follow in order to be in right standing with God. In order to be a good Jewish person, they had to follow these 613 commandments. And it was really, really hard to do. You want to talk about not ever feeling like you measure up? Jesus is talking to these Jewish people who believe in God, but they just feel like they can never get it right. They feel like they're always messing up. They're always dropping the ball on these commandments. And it's become a burden to try to keep these laws. And Jesus is looking at these Jews and he's saying, hey, take my yoke. 
Because here's what Jesus came to do. He came to be perfect enough to fulfill the law. Jesus lived a perfect life, which means he fulfilled every law that was ever written so that we wouldn't have to. And then he died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins so that we wouldn't have to. And then he rose from the grave so that we could live in relationship with our heavenly father. And so Jesus is looking at these, Jesus saying, hey, take my yoke. Because my yoke says, you don't have to be good enough because I was, I will be good enough. If you've ever felt like you have to be good enough for God, Jesus is saying, hey, I've already done that. You don't need to be burdened with this yoke of the law. I've been good enough for you. I died a death for you, and I rose from the grave for you so that you could live in relationship with your heavenly Father. The second image that would have come to mind of these um, Jewish, this Jewish audience was a physical yoke. We have a picture of it. It's a, it's a tool. It's not a torture device. <clears throat> it's a tool used in farming. And so what would happen is they would take two oxen or two goat or two calf, and we have a picture here, and they would put two of them together on this yoke, and then there would be a tool that was this long tool attached to it, and it would, they would move and it would till the ground, getting ready to, to, to plant seed and to get the crop ready for then the harvest for that year. But here's what they would do, and you can notice this in this picture. They would take a big, strong, more experienced oxen, and they would yoke it to a smaller, weaker, less experienced oxen, as that picture showed. And what would happen is when the smaller, weaker, less experienced oxen was too weak to go on, the bigger, stronger, more experienced oxen would carry the weight and keep them going. That when the weaker, smaller, less experienced oxen would want to shoot at an unsustainable pace and try to do the job too fast, to the point where they probably would only get halfway done, the stronger, bigger, more experienced oxen would set them at a sustainable pace and keep them at a sustainable rhythm. And Jesus is saying, hey, be yoked to me. I'm going to be the stronger and bigger ox, and you can be the smaller, weaker, less experienced ox, and I want to live in relationship with you. I want to walk with you. I want to be your strength when you're not strong enough. I want to be your hope when you don't have any. I want to be your rhythm when you just are sitting and stuck on the struggle bus. As I was studying for this message, I read this verse um, these, these two verses in a different Bible translation, right? There, there's, there's a bunch of different Bible translations, and there's one in particular that's very unique. It's called The Message, and The Message was um, translated by a guy named Eugene Peterson and his team, but he was a, an amazing theologian, or is, and The Message is basically the Bible paraphrased in modern-day language. It's pretty amazing. It's an amazing piece of work, and I wouldn't recommend it be something that you study every single day, right? But it's a great thing to have in reference, and I just want to read you the message translation, because it, what they show, what Jesus was trying to describe, is pretty incredible. It's, just, it's going to be up on the screen. It says, are you tired? Are you worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me, and work with me, and watch how I do it. Learn, this is amazing, the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. 
I love that line there at the beginning of, of, of verse 29. He says, walk with me and work with me and watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Remember those two images, the yoke of the law. Jesus is saying, hey, you don't need to be good enough anymore. I've done it for you. So learn this rhythm of grace. It is by grace that Jesus died on the cross for us. Stop trying to be good enough, Jesus says. And the second image, that being yoked to Jesus, living in relationship with Jesus, walking with Jesus, watching how he does it, learning how he does it, grace that the Savior of the world would want to live in relationship with you and a relationship with me. Rhythm is defined as a strong, recurring motion or movement. A strong, recurring motion or movement. Our lives were created for rhythm. We were wired and designed for routine and rhythm. And you want to know how I know that? Because one of a very popular um, technique to torture prisoners of war is not to physically hurt them. One of the most popular techniques to torture a prisoner of war is to rob them of any kind of rhythm. To, to rob them so that they don't know if it's night or day. To rob them so that they don't know what time it is. So that they don't know if it's time for breakfast, if it's time for lunch, or if it's time for dinner. To not know if they should be asleep or if they should be awake. To not know where they are locationally. To not know if they are up or if they are down. To totally disorient them and rob them of any kind of rhythm. And when it happens, insanity sets in. Why? <laughs> because we were created and designed for rhythm. And routine, a constant rhythm. It's how we're wired. And that's why when soul fatigue sets in, it robs us of rhythm. It robs us of our routine. And when our souls are tired, when our souls are fatigued, we are disconnected from the rhythm maker, Jesus. The one who wants to give you life again, who wants to restore your depleted state, who wants to give you your rhythm back. Hebrews 13.8 says that Jesus was the same yesterday and he's the same today and he'll be the same tomorrow. That Jesus is the one constant in life that we can always count on. That his rhythm of grace is the one thing that is guaranteed in our life no matter what. And the invitation of Jesus is to walk with him, work with him, watch how I do it. Walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. Walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. Walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. That's the invitation of Jesus. And here's what Jesus knew, and here's what we believe is true, is that your soul is at its best when you come to Jesus for rest. That your soul, the culmination of all that you are, is at its best when you come to Jesus for rest. When your soul is fatigued, when you're running on empty, when it's depleted, when your mind, your body, and your will are tired and you're stuck on the struggle bus, Jesus says, hey, come to me to find rest. And that is when your soul will be at its best. That I will give you life again. That I will restore what's been depleted. Because your soul is at its best when you come to Jesus for rest. If I were you, I'd be asking the question, well, what does it look like to come to Jesus for rest? Coming to Jesus for rest has a lot more to do with what you know 
in what you remind yourself about Jesus than it does to do with any kind of necessarily a physical activity. See, here's my point. Here's, here's the application. Let me just get to that. I think it'll be more clear. Here's what I want you guys to do for the next week. From Wednesday to Wednesday until the next living room next week, here's what I want you to do. I'm calling it the five-minute challenge. For five minutes every single day, I would love, if you, even if you don't believe in God, first off, if that's you, I just want you to know, thanks for coming. We're really glad that you're here, and I'm really thankful that you're here. And even if you don't believe in God, I just want you to try this. Just, just give it a go. Just give it a shot. For five minutes every single day, I want you to sit in solitude. I want you to get away from the noise. I want you to get away from the roommate. I want you to get away from the boyfriend or girlfriend. I want you to get away from the phone. I want you to get away from your homework, from your computer. I want you to find a place where you can sit in absolute silence and solitude. Maybe it's your closet. (laughs) Maybe it's your living room when no one's home. Maybe it's somewhere on campus. I don't know where it is. Maybe it's your car. I want you to find a place where every day for five minutes, you would sit in absolute solitude and rest in who Jesus is. I want you to sit in solitude and rest in the fact that Jesus, the Savior of the world, loved you enough to die on the cross for you. Rest in the reality that Jesus, the Savior of the world, wants to have a relationship with you. Rest in the reality that Jesus wants to give you hope when you don't think that there is any. Rest in the fact that it does not matter what happens on that test. It does not matter what happens on that project. It does not matter what happens in that relationship. It doesn't matter what happens in that circumstance because the one constant that you can count on no matter what is Jesus. So for five minutes each day for the next week, I want you to sit and rest in who Jesus is. Remember who Jesus is. And get away from everything that causes busyness, that leads to hurriedness, that leads to soul fatigue, that leads to getting us out of rhythm. In that five minutes, I'll go ahead and tell you, it's going to feel like an eternity. (laughs) You know why? Because we're not good at stopping ever. And one day of stopping in solitude for five minutes will be the most you might have spent in solitude and silence in the past year. Because your soul is at its best when we come to Jesus for rest. So I'm just asking you to take five minutes, five minutes each day, and sit in solitude and do nothing. And in fact, here's what I'd love to do. We're actually going to try it today, tonight, right now. Here's what we're going to do. You are just going to sit there in silence. Not because I'm telling you to be quiet, right? No, no. I just want you to sit in solitude. You don't have to close your eyes. You can close them if you want. You can keep them open. I don't care. You can do whatever you want. I just want you to sit and be. And I'm warning you, this five minutes is going to feel like it's 10 o'clock. It's going to feel like forever, but that should describe for you the human condition, that we're not good at stopping. So tonight, this will count as your five minutes for tonight, for today. I just want you to sit and think, rest, and just be. Maybe you don't think about a thing, but rest in who Jesus is in light of anything that you're looking at in life. Just be. I'd ask you not to talk. Don't forget about the people around you. Just sit and be for five minutes. And then the band's going to come up here, and they're going to close with a song. But we don't want you all to stand up and sing. We want you to sit 
and let them sing the song over you. We're going to have the lyrics up on the, on the screen for you to read them. And here's why I'm so excited about this song. It's a song, it's a, as I get emotional about it, it's a song that my wife walked down the aisle to. And I tell you that because what the song is about is about this life is only worth living with the Savior of the world. That this life is full and full of life in a way that it never could be absent of Jesus. And when I think about the picture of my wife walking down the aisle, I think of someone that I want to live the rest of my life with, but the way that that's going to happen in a way is if I put Jesus at the center of that relationship. That it's because my life needs Jesus, and if I continue to seek after Jesus, and if I live my life in a way where I know I need Jesus, I'm going to be able to have a marriage with Julie that is going to be more fulfilling than I could ever imagine. So we wanted to sing this song over you that just declares, this life is only worth living with you, Jesus. So the band's going to come here and close it out, and you just sit and enjoy, read the words, and breathe. So let's just start those five minutes right now.